Did you move to Los Angeles or did you grow up here, Andrew? No, I grew up in Illinois and uh, I moved in 2005. Did you grow up in like a rural part of Illinois or? Uh, northern suburbs of Chicago. You Willamette know, or? Uh, uh, Glenview, Northbrook. Oh, okay. You know, where Ferris Bueller's from. Oh, nice. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay. And uh, yeah, I moved in 2005 to uh, pursue uh, my career in filmmaking. Did you go to school for filmmaking or writing? No, I uh, went to, I wanted to go to USC or UCLA, but uh, it was out of state, it was really expensive. So also, parents didn't really approve, you know, wanted uh, their son to get a real job. <laughs> so I, um, I went to the University of Illinois and I, I made films, short films over there. And I entered film festivals there too. So you had another major, you were? Yeah, I majored in psychology and yeah, I was, you know, I'm still very interested in psychology and I, I like to put that in some of my, my writing. So with these short films, would you enter them in contest or you were just right now doing, or at that time, just doing it for yourself? I was doing it for myself, but the festival was a good like deadline so that I could, you know, complete it by a certain time, usually at the end of the semester. And yeah, I would, I would just do it to learn. And, but the, you know, getting an audience at the end was, was always great, so. So you came out here in 2005, so the economy was doing well. Social media was just sort of like, I think what MySpace was going and... Right, well I think Facebook was still there, but... Facebook, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Facebook too. Just started. Just yeah. started, okay. So things are, are looking good, you're coming out here. What was your plan? Were you hoping to make films? Were you hoping to get a job in television? Well, you know, I, um, I wanted to get a job um, in TV, but, you know, kind of have it be a temporary thing and I wanted to make some money and save up and have enough money to fundraise, you know, to, to fund my own short films and I was going to make, you know, uh, feature films, you know, independent feature films and, um, you know, just have enough money saved up and I was, the original plan was to save enough money to, to do that. So were you, um, at what point did you decide you wanted to be in the film industry? Was back in, back home in Illinois? Actually, I was, a, I was a, at a young age. Um, I was nine years old. I, my family had just gotten a camcorder for my older brother's graduation. And just naturally, we all started to make, uh, make videos, my brothers and I. And I, you know, they didn't get hooked, I, I got hooked. And uh, I started making um, short films by myself with the camcorder um, for a couple years. And then eventually I made my, uh, my first uh, longer short film in, uh, in uh, senior year of college, or senior year of high school, I should say. So then when you came to LA, did you apply for temporary jobs or did you look for a job in film and television as crew or whatever? Well, in college I actually interned at, I got a job at, um, or actually I got an internship at Malcolm in the Middle it was through my, you know, one of my brothers had a hookup and there was a, um, a good like entry to get in, it was the writer's office. And while I was there, I also applied for other internships and one actually became a job and it was working on an independent feature. And yeah, so that was kind of my first gig was already in college. And then after college, I actually moved out here and started looking for work and I ended up uh, getting onto uh, Prison Break, season, season one, and the post-production department. And that was also through my other brother, you know, he had a hookup with, uh, with a pro producer on a different show. And I totally messed up that interview. Oh, why? Sorry to interrupt, but what was it? Well, the, um, I think I just hadn't come out of my shell. I was really kind of shy during the interview, and I didn't really know anything about what I was applying for. So. I went in there and I remember they were asking, I asked them like, how, how long are the days? And they were like 12 hours. And I was like, whoa, uh, <laughs> is not what I signed up for. So what my producer, my, what my friend, uh, my brother's friend said was, you know, he can't, if there's a few applicants and I'm like, you know, you know number two, I'm not the, like the, the top pick, he could argue for me and kind of push me in. but. I was like at the bottom of all the applicants that they interviewed, so he couldn't really do much for me, you know, even though I had that connection. I always 
have this theory and I've read about it that sometimes the people that seem super confident and amazing in interviews are actually the worst person for the job. <laughs> and it's the one that's yeah. the quieter one. But anyway, that's that's a whole that's a whole psychological debate <laughs> on who would Maybe. be a better worker. But um, so you decided to finally get a job though doing uh, obviously something you have several credits i mean you have an impressive list of credits of working on different shows as accounting and mm -hmm. different crew like yeah i worked on uh prison break season one uh house Saracana chronicles what else uh curb your enthusiasm eastbound and down so these are some really like big name shows yeah. and i was working on all these different departments you know writer's office accounting production, post-production, and I really got to see like how the different departments were, you know, functioned and how they were different from each other. Well, you know, you talked about something, and I hope you're okay if we touch on that, and that is compromises one makes about selling out. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people in my position, a lot of people who want to make it in, in film or TV, entertainment industry, they don't really think about, they think about the money aspect, but not in terms of making it. So, you know, they're like, they're, they have a plan of, I'm gonna work three jobs, or I'm gonna become a waiter or waitress and do auditions on the side until I make it, or I'm gonna take a bunch of uh, screenwriting classes and do a little side hustle here until I make it. But often they don't actually consider what that means. Like, what does making it mean would they be okay with you know, becoming a staff writer on a TV show or doing rewrites for some production company on a script that they didn't start writing? I think um, a lot of people don't actually think about that. And so I know a lot of people who unfortunately are staff writers or they're doing a bunch of rewrites. They're making the money, but they're also really unsatisfied because it's not really what they intended to do. And I think it's something that really should be given a lot of thought um, because unfortunately some people want to be fulfilled artistically and it's, I think you really need to ask yourself, well, how much am I willing to throw that away? You know, or am I, am I not really willing to throw that away at all? Um, some people want to get paid by the industry, but there's a cost to that too sometimes. So that's why I, I always, encourage people to, you know, if there's, a, if there's another way to make money that's really easy, to try to like pursue that and try to be as independent as they can from the industry, if you're someone who wants to be independent. Now I know some people who are staff writers or, you know, they get hired to do rewrites who are completely happy and satisfied. But you have to ask yourself, which one am I? Am I someone who's gonna be happy getting hired by Hollywood? Or am I gonna be someone who is just gonna take the money but I'm gonna kind of grit my teeth doing all these rewrites or, or things that I don't want to do. Yeah, sometimes I think too, the only way you'll know is if you're lucky enough to take a job that pays you well, but you're working like 15, 20 hours, or you're always on call, or you mm -hmm. never get a weekend, and then you finally realize, yeah, you know what, this, this isn't for me. Sometimes I yeah, think you some need people, that. Yeah, some people, you know, you have to kind of try it out first. I mean, it happened to me. Did I, you know, I worked in TV and I really wasn't sure. At first I thought maybe I could get a job in TV because there's more money to be made in TV. Um, maybe I could do that on the side and then like I could, you know, get promoted and, and become a staff writer and branch out and do, do movies. But TV's tough. I mean, TV's, you know, there's a lot um, that you don't get to decide on. I mean, I just remember being, you know, on some shows, even where to go for lunch. I couldn't even, you know, it was a compromised decision. You know, I couldn't even choose what, where I wanted to eat for lunch, you know? So I was doing all these things over and over again that I, you know, I didn't really sign off on. And by the end I said, you know what, I gotta, I gotta take a shot. I gotta leave the steady, steady paycheck and pursue my own thing. And, you know, if I come up with anything else on the side that's easy, you know, let's try to do that too. I think some people, yeah, they thrive in those corporate group settings. Sometimes I'll see people mm -hmm. at lunchtime, like a big group of, of people, then I'm like, yeah, they look like they're coming from 
some studio job or something within right. the industry, advertising, whatever. And they look perfectly happy, and, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But I think for some people, they can do that. And I think, again, some people can't. And that's not a bad thing if you're more, you want to do something independent. It's just harder, I think, to get that, that right. paycheck. It is harder to get that paycheck, but keep in mind that you know, the, the downside is that someone who's getting that paycheck, you know, they might not be as fulfilled artistically as you know, someone who is, uh, or someone who is doing it the independent route, making what they want to make. So I think you got to ask yourself, which one am I? You know? And if it takes you know, some time, you, know, you have to try it out to see, you know, uh, just try it out and see, but don't, you know, don't take too long. You know? Don't get stuck is what, I'm, you know, what I suggest to all my friends in the industry who are or are about to pursue what they want to do. Are your parents okay with you now that you moved to LA or? Well, they just moved to LA too. Oh, they did, so, oh great, yeah, okay. But they were, you know, we had, um, they were in Illinois for a while, so you know, I had to call them and everything every week, you know. But um, yeah, I helped them move to, to LA. And um, yeah, I think now that they, you know, now that they found out that I'm doing something that's actually making money, renting out the DeLorean, um, yeah, now that they're, they're um, you know, less worried. I think, I think a parent's gonna be worried if um, their kid is, going, you know, is doing some sort of artistic venture that's not traditional because there's, you know, there are a lot of question marks and nothing is guaranteed as, as much as you know, a steady paycheck. But even that's not really guaranteed either. So I, um, I remember a story about, um, well, one of the stories that I tell is I actually met a famous actor's father on an airplane in the 90s. And it was the first time I'd been on an airplane by myself. And I just I'm, was flying from LA to Chicago. This guy started talking to me. And we started talking, he was this older gentleman. And he was starting to say, you know, he was talking about his son a lot. And I, you know, I started to listen, you know, I, I didn't mind, it was my first time, so I was just listening to him. And I thought he was really cool because he uh, really supported his son emotionally um, even though his son was kind of struggling at the time as a struggling actor. And I made sure I, you know, remembered the name and I checked out his, his, uh, his name on IMDb over the course of the years. And his son is now one of the biggest uh, names in comedy. So, wow. right. So, and cool. I remember specifically asking him, you know, what do you, do you think your son's ever going to make it? And he kind of like shook his head and said, nah, you know. More because, not because he didn't believe in his son, but more because he thought Hollywood was this, you know, giant sinkhole where everybody went to die, you know. And no, his son, you know, he said no, but he said he, um, he really supported him emotionally because, you know, his son had the courage to do, you know, what he wanted to do and he respected him for that. So, I mean, that's, that's support from a parent that, that um, you know, is, is really great that I wish all parents had. That's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. I almost don't want to say his name. Cause yeah, no, no, we won't. We won't, we, won't, we won't say his name just to keep his anonymity, but um, I think that's a really He's cool very story. very famous. Hmm. And it's interesting that you got to sort of see, I don't know at what level he was at then on IMDb in terms had, of how many credits. He had, uh, <laughs> he had one part on a TV show uh, that was like a guest spot, <laughs> and he had one line in a movie. And that was it. Wow. And now, and then, then, now he's one of the bigger names. He had, he was the star of his own TV show. Wow, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, I always find it interesting to see someone's transgression of you know how they were in the beginning, and then mm -hmm. sometimes it's more exciting than to actually think what their lives might be like now. Right. Because um, sometimes I know people talk about they wish they could go back to those. Those times I was watching something on the two Steves, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and mm -hmm. Steve Wozniak just talked about you can't really get those times back when they were building a computer in the garage. You can't get right. those times when it just seems like it's nothing, but it really right. was part of the journey. But you, you know, so maybe some of these actors feel the same or filmmakers. Yeah, sometimes the struggle and the pain is actually what makes you into a, you know, a better person, or you learn from it, or you put it into your artwork. And you know sometimes you can use that and 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 uh, really make something great, you know, like like Apple, like what what yeah. two Steves did. And then you know once you've made it, it's like then there's a different problem where you can you can't really fail as 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 much as you you did before in the past, you know. 
Right, a lot of eyeballs, a lot of scrutiny. Right, right. right. How many years were you in TV? I started, uh, well, when I, once I officially moved here, which was 2005, um, I did it for about six years. And yeah, I, I worked on Prison Break. That was the first show. And then the last show was Eastbound and Down in North Carolina. I actually went to North Carolina to, to shoot that film, uh, shoot, shoot that uh, TV show. And yeah, I, I definitely had different reactions on both shows. Uh, season one of Prison Break was really, really exciting. It was the hit show, and I was really glad to be a part of it, that I was finally making money in LA. And everybody, you know, all my friends were calling me and they're like, oh yeah, I just I saw the show last night and what's gonna happen? And, you know, it was really exciting. And I was really open to doing, you know, whatever the producers uh, wanted me to do, whatever my bosses wanted me to do. And it just felt great being a part of a, a team. And even though I wasn't involved creatively, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, I've made it. I'm gonna, you know, you know, maybe I'll be, you know, writing a show one day and, and uh, you know, I'll have my name in the credits. But then flash forward six years later, I was actually working on Eastbound and Down in North Carolina. And I loved all the people that I worked with. Um, I really, you know, I really connected with them and you know, they were great. Just that I felt differently on that last show. I was really unfulfilled and there was so many things happening and um, all the days we couldn't, we couldn't, I was in accounting then, all the days were, all the paperwork was getting high and I didn't really have time for my writing. You know, I would always go home and, and fall asleep at the computer and it would really bother me. And I thought, you know, how many more years Am I going to be doing this? And I remember specifically, we, there was a sizzle reel of the show where they cut together all the different, all, you know, all these highlights before the season started um, of uh, the, the, the show for the cast and crew, you know, to get them excited for the upcoming season. And I watched it and I didn't really feel anything. And I looked at other people who didn't have anything to do with their show creatively. They're my level or um, in a different department. And they were really excited and they were just like, you know, so see they were saying that all the stuff that they went through was worth it because of, you know, what they saw on the scissor reel. And I just felt like, you know, I'm, I'm working on someone else's show. I didn't really feel anything. Um, maybe it's time for me to get out, you know. It's, uh, I've kind of lost that, you know, it's, it's kind of gotten old now. I, it's time for me to move on and, and try to work on my own show or my own movie, you know, so that's when I decided to leave. Do you think the recession had anything to do with that too? Because you started when the recession, when the economy was doing fairly well, and then... I don't think so no. because, um, I mean, nowadays there's all these different shows. You know, shows are abundant now. I mean, mm -hmm. whoever says that, there's no work in Hollywood and it's all competitive. I mean, they don't know all the shows that exist <laughs> that they'll never see on all these different platforms. So I don't think, I mean, there was always a show. Um, so that, I don't think that was the case for me. It was just my own personal uh, fulfillment. I wasn't feeling it. So then did you say, well, I'm gonna, did you give yourself any kind of deadline? You say, I'm gonna leave this job and do something that's you know, more piecemeal or part-time and then work on my own stuff? I line. did try to give myself a deadline, but I'm also really bad at deadlines too. I've noticed it's one of my big weaknesses. Um, you know, I usually predict stuff like, oh, I'm gonna get it done by this time and then, you know, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. But I did um, take some, you know, writing classes and, and I felt like it was time for me to you know, start writing my own feature film. And I knew that there was going to be a big learning curve um, that, you know, I was going to take some time. So I was, but I was ready to do it. I was ready to, to, you know, if it took years, you know, I was going to do it. What was some of the most exciting things about these writing classes? Like what were some things that you thought you knew about filmmaking, so you know, story structure, and then you were pleasantly surprised to learn other things? Well, um, I think the best writing class I took was a scene writing class. I learned a lot in that class because the teacher basically said that, you know, the problems that are probably present in your screenplay 
are probably going to be also be present in your scenes. So why don't we look and you know write a bunch of scenes, and we could learn really quickly. We'll bring in a scene a week, and we'll all get feedback. And that was I think I learned the most in that class where I was just every week bringing in a new scene, learning what I was doing wrong, and um, hearing feedback from others. It also trained me to. Uh, learn how to receive fe feedback too. Uh, you know, I remember my first class, I was so nervous and it was a big pile of, of scenes and we hadn't done a, uh, we hadn't critiqued anybody's uh, scene yet. My teacher picks one and it's mine. He's like, who wrote, you know, exterior desert day or whatever? And I was like, oh man, this is me. But um, I remember being so nervous hearing about what everybody else thought, but by the end of that class, I was like, yeah, let's, you know, give it to me, you know? Um, you know, I, I was open to, to, to feedback and learning, so that, that class really did change me, and, and I think it's probably like the best class that I, I've ever took. What have you learned working in television that could be helpful to people just arriving in LA, new writers? Um, that writing, is uh, if you want to be a writer with some sort of power, you got to end up in TV. For some reason, the way it's structured in TV, all the writers have the writers have all the power. So um, the writers come up with the story. They really focus on story, which is why all the good writers are, are going into TV, and the film industry is kind of suffering a little bit. But all the writers go into all the good writers go into TV. They figure out the story. And new dire and directors come in each week to to direct the episode, but they don't have as much power as as the showrunner who's in the writer's office. If you're in film, it's complete opposite. It's like the it's all about the director. The writer doesn't really have so much power as in TV, and you know a writer can just a writer doesn't even have to show up into to, to set sometimes. I've been on a, um, a feature film that the writer showed up on like the last day and was, and they were like, oh yeah, here's craft service, you know? So uh, if, if, you're, if you wanna be a writer and you wanna have some power, end up in TV. But you know, if you want to do film, then pursue film, but just kinda know that you're probably not gonna be, have, you're not probably not gonna have as much power if you're working on a film versus uh, a television show. Are you still taking screenwriting classes? Um, I, I had taken a class, um, uh, overall screenplay structure class, and I'm still open to taking more. Um, I actually just signed up for, actually my friend just gave me a uh, year for uh, a master class, you know, a all access pass to master class, which is online classes. I think Aaron Sorkin has one class. and. So I'm going to be taking those too, and I think it's okay to, you know, I don't think you should ever stop taking classes. You know, there's always things that you can learn. So, you know, I, I heard of, um, I, I, I don't know who it was, but a, there was a successful writer who kept on taking classes, and I think he had won uh, some sort of, maybe it was, maybe it was like an Oscar or something, or maybe it was a, he was nominated for one. But um, I remember hearing stories about. Uh, they were told by previous teachers about how the best students kept on taking courses, you know, and, and kept on learning and figuring out what worked for them. Yeah, plus you can meet interesting people in those classes and you right. can bounce ideas off or you can see what they're doing and, right. and look at something in a new way. And that's, that's the cool part that the online classes don't offer. You know? True, true. Um, yeah, the networking part. And what I would say is to anybody who's up and coming is that um, people get promoted way quicker than you might realize. So someone who might not be as established as you, as you in, in your writing class, you know, might one day become your boss, you know? So, and it might happen really quickly. I mean, it's happened, you know, I've seen it happen, so. Wonder if just quickly we could talk about the DeLorean, whatever you Sure. Were. Okay, so this is your beautiful DeLorean. 1981 DMC 12. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank it's you. in like excellent condition. 
it's shiny. It looks great inside. I haven't totally been inside, but it looks really <laughs> You'll cool. You'll get a ride, don't worry. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> don't go too fast, though. Okay. 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 I get scared at busy, busy intersections. Right. But, um, so are you, you're, you've owned it for a little bit or? Well, I bought it in January of uh, last year, of 2017. Bought it on eBay. So I hadn't test driven it, so it was a little bit of a risk, but I, uh, I decided to kind of pull the trigger on it, and I bought it so that I could rent it out. So that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I set up my, my side business, carofdreams.com, where people can rent out this DeLorean. And um, yeah, I've already gotten several rentals already, and I started actually this past fall, and uh, yeah, the reactions have been really great, like just seeing people, you know, and their reactions to it, and uh, I think one guy was almost like in tears, you know. So, Why? Just because he loved the he movie just so loved, much? He, yeah, he oh. just loved, yeah, he was just like in awe of, of the car, so it's definitely a car that gives you uh, an emotional reaction, you know, once you see it for the first time in person. Yeah, that's true. And and how much background information did you do on the actual DeLorean story? Um, a little bit. I know I know that um, it's a very interesting story with uh, John DeLorean. He was a very um, established figure in the car business uh, in the car industry, and he decided to make his dream car, but he had some problems funding it, and he ran into a lot of problems. And eventually, like his dream sort of died in uh, 1983. So, you know, he got busted for trying to do a cocaine deal, uh, allegedly. Um, and yeah, his, his, he had a vision of, you know, a DeLorean on every, you know, every corner in the future. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. So. But now, fast forward 30 plus years, and it's, it's like collector's item. You said there's right. only. 6,500 left? Right, there's only about 6,500 left. Um, there's about nine, th that's just an estimate too, but there are 9,000 9, were, only 9,000 were made, and you know, still like six, you know, 6,500 out of 9,000, still a pretty good large chunk that are still here, you know, percentage-wise. And it's a really unique car. Uh, the guy was kind of a visionary. He, you know, no other car was stainless steel and had the gullwing doors. He decided to put the engine in the back and the gas in the front, in the trunk, where the trunk is. And um, yeah, he really, he, he really was an out-of-the-box thinker and, uh, and used, his, used his experience in the car industry to try to make something new. And this was his passion, passion project. Do you remember where the DeLorean was made? I believe it was Northern Ireland, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Any anyone that knows if it's not, right, they post can in the comments. Com yeah, below. comments. <laughs> Please be kind. Okay. Um, what was it about the DeLorean aside from the fact that it's from Back to the Future? Was it also the story behind it that was fascinating? Well, actually, no. I it was basically because it was in Back to the Future. And actually, when I first saw the movie, I I didn't even know that DeLorean was. Um, a company. I thought they just made it. They made the car for the film, so I didn't know that until like I was well into adulthood, and I eventually learned about the story. And I thought, wow, oh, this is really interesting. So I think, I mean, I I think it'd make a great you know biopic. And I I know that there's some talk about possibly making a John DeLorean um, picture. You know, it'd be awesome to write that. You know, but yeah, yeah. I, I know it's probably already being made right now. So. So you talked about being in television and with some of the jobs, the hours were so long that you really didn't have much of a creative life. Mm -hmm. So you talk about leaving that world and then going and doing your own thing with the writing, your schedule. Yeah, it was from one extreme to the other. Um, you know, in one situation, I'm coming home late at night, tired and trying to write and falling asleep after like three sentences. And then all of a sudden I have all these hours in the day and I'm writing, you know, trying to work on my process, trying to figure out what exactly, um, what exactly I need to do as a writer to get the best product out there. So, um, yeah, I left, you know, I, I, I left the TV industry and I really wasn't sure what type of a writer I was. I, I thought I was like a writer that really needed to focus on, 
you know, creating those rich characters and developing that and trying to explore. Um, but I started to realize I actually needed more, I was a writer that needed more organization, like more structure, and started to learn more about um, the structure of, of screenplays and, uh, and scenes and everything like that. So, How was that, having so much time? Because sometimes having too much free time right. is actually a curse because right. you don't structure it and you think, oh, I can just do that tomorrow, right. and then it's a week later. Right, yeah, you kind of expand your days, and all the days kind of seem like one, you know, um, what I would do is I would actually go to places to write. So I still do this. I, you know, I go to the library, and um, that's probably my favorite spot. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, there's some there's some other places that you could go to. You know, you could go. You know, I know that the um, I heard the the writer of the Sting actually wrote his screenplay in an airport. Just you know, the, he had the busy you know people like shuffling back and forth, and he. He was able to do it. I've also heard of other writers that it's kind of a little bit more extreme, but I heard of one that actually checks into a hotel, uh, <laughs> removes all his clothes, and gives them to a friend, and just says, "I got to finish this screenplay, or else I'm going to be, you know, losing money, and I'm totally like by myself without anything." You know, at some point, the maid's going to come in. So. Uh, that's that's a little bit more extreme, and um, <laughs> don't try of, that at the library, by the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to try that at the library, but who knows? I mean, maybe. And uh, I heard of one writer who actually wrote on a boat from uh, from the U.S. to Asia, some sort of boat, and he didn't have any distractions with cell phone, you know, cell phones or anything like that, and he just needed to some time, and, and there was a deadline too. Uh, I'd say like a, any sort of deadline, for certain, at least for me, really does help. Um, but it's got to be like the right deadline. It can't just be any arbitrary deadline. You know, you can't just say, by tomorrow, you know, by tomorrow I'm going to be done. Yeah, and the library is great too because sometimes you can't really get Wi-Fi that easily unless you like log on to their system and, you know, agree to their terms and stuff. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's nice to just say, you know what? I'm not going to have Wi-Fi in here. Right, and just, yeah. You get stuff done. Sometimes Wi-Fi is your biggest enemy. Really, and, uh, I mean, you, sometimes you could use it to research, but other times you don't want to. You want to kind of shy away from it. I actually got rid of my internet, so uh, I have to go to the gym in my complex to to use the internet, and that keeps me a little bit more focused. Interesting. You know? no. Yeah. And that was a conscious decision because you knew it distracted you. Yeah, it was. You know, I didn't want to be re you know researching all the time. And yeah, it really puts me in the zone. And then also, I don't also write only in at my place. I you know I go out and stuff. So, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I do a lot of writing outside. So, do people ever stop you and ask you what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, people are curious, and you know, I, I give them a the little pitch. What's so, your pitch? So yeah, right now I'm working on a uh, ensemble film. It's a high school drama about bullying and abuse and there's lots of different characters and lots of li lots of storylines that intersect and yeah it's kind of like the uh, traffic of of bullying or uh, the crash of of bullying that issue and it's all set in one location a, a school and yeah that's what I'm that's what I'm working on right now it's interesting cuz going back to back to the future you know, there's a lot of themes about bullying in there, but it wasn't as prevalent in the 80s movies as it is today, I feel like. Right. I think um, stories today kind of focus a little bit more on, you know, it, it was, it's a little bit more black and white movies from the past. You know, it's just, the bully is a jerk, you know. But nowadays, people want to know a little bit more about the psychology behind it. You know, a lot of people, for instance, who are, are bullies have been bullied. And, um, you know, there's, there's more to it. You can't, you know, one of, one of my writer friends told me something that was very important. And, and she said, writers cannot judge, should not judge their own characters. You know, even if it's a, a bad guy. Uh, there's got to be something, you know, redeemable about him or her that, you know, you should kind of get behind, you know. So I always, I always think about that when I write my characters. Right. Sort of just try to show the human side to them, but also why they feel justified. 
Yeah, I think you really need to understand where the character is coming from, and you also need to make your characters more three-dimensional. And you know, no one is 100% good or 100% bad. Everybody's kind of in the middle, more so than others. <laughs> but um, yeah, and you have to understand where they're coming from. I think uh, you know, the Karate Kid was a movie in the 80s that um, I remember watching a making of where the guy who played Johnny was like, no, you know, his point of view as an actor was that he was the, his character was the main guy, was the main character, and, and uh, Daniel was the bad guy. You know, Daniel was the guy who was trying to take his girlfriend, Daniel was the guy who was starting all these fights, and he looked at it from that perspective, and that really helped his performance. Aside from Back to the Future, what are some films that you just love that really inspire you to want to write? Um, I was just watching, uh, I was just re-watching the movie Her. That was, that was a film that I really loved. Um, it won, uh, Spike Jones won uh, the Oscar for, for Best Writing. And I was also watching uh, Eternal Sunshine, Spotless Mind, and Charlie Kaufman, he also won. And um, I showed them to a friend who was kind of, he had his heart broken, and I showed him these movies, and, and he really felt more at peace about his situation after watching it. It's because it of the, the great writing, you know. The writing really, uh, you know, spoke some truth to him, you know. So I, lo I love movies like that, that can really just capture, like, you know, what it is to, to go through a breakup or, or something that's really human, you know. Right, well, isn't that what they say that, you know, for the best advice to young writers is go out and live life, you know, experience right. things, get your heart broken. Right. Even yeah, it doesn't that, sound fun, but... Yeah, but it's that, I guess it's that struggle or that pain that, you know, makes you create something great, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you want to, if you get your heart broken, you know, turn that story into some sort of literature. Right. Yeah, I don't know if Biff could write a a screenplay, what it, if so, what it would be about. <laughs> right, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All the people in his way, maybe. Well, Hollywood better not produce it. Uh, Back to the Future remake <laughs> with Biff, Biff as the main story, character. Yeah. yeah, yeah. they actually said he was a really nice guy in person. That's what I heard too, yeah, yeah in the making of. <laughs> Thomas Wilson was really uh, funny too. Really funny, really nice, so. Well, especially now since you've Kind of gotten rid of your Wi-Fi. Um, mm. How much time do you spend writing? How many days? How many hours? It really does depend. Um, I uh, it's usually every day, or hope, you know, uh, every writer should try to write uh, something every day. So I try to do it every day, and I've gone from one extreme to the other. I've gone from shoot, I don't have, I have ten minutes left in the day. Let me just jot down something to you know, spending an entire day focused on developing my story and just staying in and just um, trying to meet that deadline. But yeah, usually right now it's, it's uh, I'd probably say it's uh, a couple hours a day. Hours. Yeah. But you can't, you know, you can't spend, living both extremes, you kind of have to meet somewhere in the middle, you know. You kind of have to, you know, breaks are good running, doing some sort of exercise, doing some sort of errand, you know, going in the shower, you know, that's when the best ideas come, so. So do you love writing as much as you thought you would? Because I know when someone has like a full-time job, the thought of free time is mm -hmm. so appealing. Right. And then once you get it, sometimes it's hard to like know what to do with yourself. So do you, do you love writing as much as sort of you romanticized before you left the TV world? Absolutely. I. Um, I really feel fulfilled in that I'm doing what I want to do, even though, you know, I haven't made it yet. I'm um, focused on, you know, pursuing the stories that I want to tell, and I've lived where, you know, I've I've lived the life where I wasn't even trying. I was making the money, but I wasn't, you know, I was working on someone else's project, and that's just a terrible feeling, knowing that you're not even trying. You know, you're you could be you're leaving a lot of time out for you know, someone else, and you could be using that time for yourself. So, you know, you know I'm, I'm, I haven't made it yet, but I really do feel like I'm doing the right thing, so. What does making it look like? Well, making it looks like, uh, hopefully, um, basically making my, the films that I wanna make, 
and raising the money independently and producing those films and directing them and continuing to do that over and over again and maybe showing it at a, at a film festival and maybe someday selling, selling those uh, films to a production company and watching, uh, watching a movie with an audience that, that I made that I was you know, happy with. What do you think about the pressure that millennials face to not only make it, which means have what they want to do be their job, how they get money, but also then there's this extra pressure of social media where they have to have, they have to be Instagram famous or whatever, Tumblr famous, they have to have all these followers. So, because that's a new element to making it that wasn't around a decade ago. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, nowadays there all these platforms where people are getting on them so early where their view of success is how others view them. So, you know, I know, for instance, I know there are people on Instagram who take these beautiful pictures, but it takes like a million takes to, to make that picture look good. And they don't even look, you know, I've seen some people, they, they don't even look happy taking them, you know? but their life looks so good on Instagram. <laughs> and um, it's, yeah, it's something that as a writer, you really have to, you know, you really have to know yourself. You have to, as, a, as an artist, you have to create something and, and ask yourself, am I fulfilled with that? Is this what I want to put out into the world? And just put it out there. And I mean, not everybody's gonna like it. So you have to be okay with that. Not everybody's gonna like your scene and scene, scene writing class. Not everybody's gonna like your movie. And I, I really feel like sometimes the younger generation, they don't really know this because, you know, it's almost like how many likes or how many subscribers or followers you have is, is who you are. And no, that's, you know, who you are is, is how you feel about your content that you put out there. So uh, that's kind of what I wanted to, you know, tell anybody who was younger than me, you know, on Instagram. So. You think there's a pressure to be putting out all these fun photos? So not only be great at as being a writer and, and be doing stuff, but also then the pressure to be putting out all these photos where, yeah, here I'm in Vail with all my like, you know, and I see that and I wonder how people must feel that pressure that are after college, just getting out, like, oh, I need to keep up so, because everybody else puts those out. Yeah, there, there, there definitely is pressure. Um, not just for like, oh, look at how good my life is, but also, I mean, even if you don't care about that stuff, you know, nowadays film festivals look at audience. You know, if your film does not have an audience already, and you know, once you get into a film festival, you know, that'll affect sales, you know, that'll affect um, how many people want to make offers to you. So there's all this, all of a sudden pressure to create some sort of audience for your film before it even, you know, gets shown. And, you know, on top of that, it's like, then you feel like, you know, I only have, you know, a hundred likes, you know, how bad does, you know, my, my script sucks or my, my movie sucks, you know, based on this reaction here. But you kind of have to focus on, you know, am I real, in my opinion, you have to focus on, am I really making what I really want to make? Am I happy with it? As long as you're happy with it, I think, you know, you should be happy with it first and then put it out into the world. You shouldn't, you know, try to cater to what the world wants if, uh, if you want to kind of go that route as an artist. Do you think there's a story structure that professionals use? I think it's different for everybody. I don't think there's one story structure that fits everything. Uh, a lot of people talk about three-act structure and I kind of dog on it a little bit because uh, I think it really oversimplifies everything. And there are some books that I won't name that say that you need to have this happen on this page. And it's very strict. I think that just as long as you have a main character that you, for some reason, really care about, and there's conflict present, and that conflict escalates and keeps on escalating, and you're still engaged as an audience member, that's what people, um, that's what the professional writers, you know, use. Um, but I, in terms of like a one structure, 
uh, I don't really believe that there is only one out there. Well, I know when just watching um, Back to the Future and doing the script analysis with you, you know, different beats weren't, didn't seem like they were being met exactly when mm -hmm. some of these, you know, story structure experts say they should. But, you know, it still works. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, whatever really helps you as a writer, I mean, it, if it does help you, I mean, I know Back to the Future really, you know, it does fit into that three-act structure. But I was just, you know, I would just warn against some people, you, know, you know, some writers think that it's like screenwriting religion. And I would just say that, you know, there are plenty of films that don't fit three-act structure. Do you find taking the online screenwriting classes helpful? Uh, well, actually, I actually haven't signed up for that yet. Oh, you haven't? Okay. It was uh, a Christmas gift. gift. Yeah, That's Christmas a nice gift that I, yeah. you know, I, I've yeah. been procrastinating on. But um, yeah, classes, you know, any type of class really helps. And um, you know, I've taken I've taken classes where, you know, we did it like a like a live chat or a li live video feed. And that you know, that's the same thing too. You know, it's it's. Um, you know, it, it, as long as you're just getting, as long as you're learning every week, I think, you know, it's it's definitely worthwhile to take take classes. If you're taking an entire class, and you're still questioning the teacher, and maybe you're you're not sure if you've grown, then that's probably a class that, you know, you probably don't want to take again. Which I've taken that class, so. Is that when there's too many study groups? You know, when they like, okay, guys, uh, I'm just gonna have you go in groups, and you're like, no, <laughs> I want to listen to you talk. <laughs> uh, well, I haven't taken that one, okay. but um, yeah, I've definitely taken classes where with, uh, you know, one teacher I, I'm not going to mention, right, but right. Uh, you know, many years ago, I could just tell from everybody that, um, that uh, they, they weren't really growing and, uh, mm. you know, that's unfortunate. And I just remember he would just draw a big line on the chalkboard every, <laughs> every class you know, talking about inciting incident and everything like that. Interesting. That's really all I got out of the class, so, yeah. unfortunately. I know the best classes for me, um, and I didn't take them on, really on writing, but were just when the teacher was so entertaining and so interesting, you could just sit there and the three hours would just go by like that. And there were a few teachers like that where they were just their own show. And that's, yeah. that to me, you were just lost in that class. Yeah, I know, um, yeah, one of my teachers, he would, um, he definitely knew how to entertain and he would put that into his class. And I mean, I, I just remember every time we'd be so interested and then at the perfect moment he'd say, and I'll tell you after the break. And we'd take, <laughs> you know, a 10 minute bathroom break or whatever. And we'd be like so psyched to, to learn about what, you know, what he wanted to, to, to teach. So, you know, right. people who know how to do that, they, they definitely know something about telling a story about the rhythm of storytelling. And a lot of them talk about their own lives. The teacher that I'm referring to, I mean, he told us some, you know, deep, dark stuff about wanting to take his own life and coming back from that and oh, really? all the stuff. And I mean, we were just riveted in this class and he really just laid it all out there. Mm. And it was just, yeah. Yeah, something about writers is that I feel like writers have to be, well, first of all, they've probably gone through a lot. They have, probably have a lot to say and also, they have to be honest, you know, they got to be honest with their motivations, the characters make, and they're usually people who are just trying to be honest with everything. And being honest is, like, you kind of have to practice that as a writer. So, yeah, good for him. You mentioned earlier that you took a scene writing class. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things that you learned or maybe you received feedback, like if you wrote a scene and showed it to the rest of the class or the teacher and then got these notes? What were they? Well, I'd probably say um, the biggest thing that I learned was that my gut and how I feel about a scene and how well it will do uh, is usually pretty off, pretty inaccurate. So I'd walk into class sometimes feeling super confident that everything was super clear and engaging in my scene. And then people would have questions or they had problems with, you know, and I was like, and I'd, I'd listen to that. And then I, after I'd hear them speak, I'd be like, oh, actually, yeah, you know, why did I feel so confident? Um, and then there are other times when I just, I remember my teacher told me, forget everything I said, just write the scene, just write it out, do it sloppy, whatever. And I did it kind of sloppy. And I was like, oh, this is going to get 
torn up in class. This is going to be the worst scene ever. And then everybody had all these great things, great things to say. So your gut, as a, as a, a writer, sometimes when you're learning, um, might be a little bit off. And yeah, I, I noticed that um, that my writing would improve once my you know what my my gut would be in check with everybody else. So were you just like in the scene with? Um... Uh, Marty McFly, or with George McFly, sorry, where he's writing, and you can see he's very passionate about it, but he doesn't want to show it to anybody, and he says, because I don't want it, anyone to criticize it. Mm -hmm. How was it for you to show your writing to the class? Yeah, I felt the same way. I mean, I was, um, you know, when, when my teacher picked out that scene, it was terrifying. Uh, and it was, a, it, you know, it was a successful scene. I mean, I, I felt pretty good about it, too. It was the one time I felt good, and it actually turned out to be okay. And, you know, I was, I was super nervous. But as a writer, you have to practice that. You have to get your, your work out there and, and you have to know that not everybody's going to like it, you know. You, um, you know, even the whole thing with, um, I was just saying about feeling super confident about it, that all came from me thinking, you know, I, I was thinking about what other people would think about it, not asking myself, how did I feel about my own thing that I wrote? Really, I just feel like, um, yeah, it just, it's just um, something that you have to practice. And you have to know that it's not going to get a, a reaction. It's okay if, if it doesn't get a, you know, everybody in the class you know, loves it. It's okay. I think, too, I like it when people in the class are way better than me because it gives me something to aspire to. And it doesn't matter if they're way younger or not. It's just nice to know, wow, okay, that's possible. Yeah, I like how that person worded that and I like what they're saying and then it kind of gives me something to kind of set a goal for. Um, and so it rubs off on you a little bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, because sometimes I, if I'm not happy with something, then I just want to see other people that are, I mean, I've taken classes where I was just sort of totally humbled by how great everyone was and it was it's actually kind of nice to listen to other people read and people that you just, they were so quiet in class and you would never expect that to come from them. And you were like, wow, that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And otherwise they were so unassuming, you wouldn't, they didn't want to be noticed, they would just, and then they would write and you were like, that's amazing. And they didn't think so. Mm. Yeah, it's good to take those classes um, where you feel like you, you know, you want to improve, you have a, a big learning curve that you want right. to go through. And that, but I've also taken classes where, you know, they were a little more basic and I was actually, you know, one of the better writers and those classes are good too because it, you know, shows you how, how far you've come, you know. So, yeah, I, th I think taking classes, you know, as long as it's with a, a good teacher right. is good. Right, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I miss, I miss those classes. Oh, really? Yeah. Seems like now stuff is too, too online and I miss that. Right. Sitting in the classroom and listening to the teacher. So it's well, just take you know, just watch the DVD commentary that we did. That's all <laughs> okay. you need. Okay, there the you go. <laughs>